Hello, everyone, and welcome to J Talks Live. I'm Anna Maria Tremonti, and I'm the host of this J Talks Live series. Our theme this season is the evolution of journalism, and our guest today played a part in that in his 20 years as editor of The Guardian. Alan Rusbridger is here to discuss the ideas and observations in his latest book, News and How to Use It, What to Believe in a Fake News World, a user's guide on how to stay informed and separate fact from fiction in today's messy information landscape. Now, before we begin, I want to thank exclusive JTalks Live sponsor, TD Bank Group, for making this series possible. Thanks also to in-kind sponsors, CPAC and Cision. The work of the Canadian Journalism Foundation is possible with thanks to sponsors and thanks to your generosity. The CJF is grateful for any donation to help to support quality journalism. If you'd like to tweet about this talk, the hashtag is JTalksLive. If you'd like to submit a question at any time, use the questions tab on your screen. And we've already got some great questions and we're open to getting more. I'll try to get in as many as I can. And now to our guest, Alan Rusbridger is the chair of the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism at Oxford University. He's a member of the Facebook Oversight Board, and he's joining us now. Hello, Alan, and welcome. Thanks for joining us. I am very pleased to be here. Um, you are actually making news right now. You are in the news, so I'm going to start there. Um, you're quoted in The Guardian saying that Facebook's Oversight Board, of which you are a member, is trying to get access to Facebook's curation algorithm to understand how it works. What will that understanding allow you to do? Well, I think I was voicing a tiny frustration that um, the, the work we're doing as a board, I think, is incredibly important. We're, we're deciding, we're, we're, we're laying down sort of principles for, for what should be allowed up and what should be taken down. But I think over time, I anticipate, and it's just my feeling, that... Um, there are bigger issues to do with content that um, we, we keep hearing about. So, you know, it, it, people say that the mysterious algorithm um, is um, giving preference to content that is emotional, polarizing, that is in, engaging, addictive, all these things that you, you hear. And I think in doing our work as an oversight board, eventually we will want to have discussions with Facebook about that and to try and understand what what they're trying to do. I mean, it's, it's as basic as that. And um, do you foresee maybe suggesting they change their algorithm at all, or you just really want to get a much deeper understanding of what it's capable of doing and telling them? I, I think, first of all, I understand it, and I don't think that's going to be easy. I mean, there was there was <laughs> some mirth on Twitter today because I, I I said, you know, we need to see the algorithm, and, and all these um, computer scientists were laughing at my naivety. But you know what I mean. Um, uh, and I think it'll be a complicated thing uh, for a, for a bunch of you know human rights experts and, and lawyers and editors to get their heads around. Um, because this is a very sophisticated thing that has been developed by some of the best coders in the world. But nevertheless, I think in order for us to understand what Facebook's purpose is on a spectrum from you know, public service over here to making shed loads of money over here, um, because that's really important in terms of how we think of um, what content should be allowed or not allowed. 
And will the board get the access it wants? I don't know. We, I mean, we, we've only just started. Um, we've got our feet, feet under the desk. We've, we've, we've come out with um, a handful of decisions so far. Um, but I think the decisions we have done have been well received. People can see that this is a serious enterprise. Uh, so I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, I think, a bit. But I'm, I'm, I'm sort of looking uh, months or years down the line and, and, and thinking that this is bound to be where we will end up. Talk to me a little bit more about this board because um, you're quasi-independent. I'm wondering what that means. I'm wondering what you were thinking when you joined that board. Um, um, did they choose you? How does this all work? Well, yeah, yeah, they set it up and they funded it and they put a, 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 a trust above it so that it is now completely independent. But um, we're open to the criticism that we were handpicked by Facebook in the first place. But um, <clears throat> I mean, when I look around my board members, I, I see some quite stroppy, independent minded people, some of whom don't actually like social media, quite a lot of whom I've got lots of doubts about Facebook. So it, it's an odd group to have chosen if they wanted a quiet life. But I think it will become more and more independent over time because we're going to choose the, the next 20 people. We're, we're, the aim is to have a board of 40. Uh, and I have no uh, influence over us. Uh, on the contrary, they're, they're obliged to, to uh, obey our rulings. Uh, and I think if they didn't take notice of our policy recommendations as well, uh, it would be highly noticeable. Okay, well, I'll circle back to Facebook in a bit because we already have several questions from people <clears throat> in our audience about <clears throat> that. But I want to talk as well about the sweep of news that you chronicle in your book. What do you want us to understand about the evolution of news and news coverage from really, I'm guessing, like around the 60s until now? Well, because I've been a journalist for 40 years, I, I want journalism to be an essential part of life. I mean, I just, I, I believe that. I think you need people in society who are independent witnesses who can say this happened, this didn't happen, this is right, that's wrong. Uh, and I think journalists do that at their best very well. But what confuses me, and I think a lot of people at the moment, is it's so frightening living in a world of, information chaos, um, just look at the last four years in the United States, that you would think there would be a, a, a rush back to the safe harbor of professionally generated news. And that's not happening uh, at, at nearly the scale that it should be. And I think that indicates maybe a misunderstanding uh, amongst people about what news tries to do. Maybe it's a complacency amongst journalists, uh, an unwillingness to rethink how trust is earned in the 21st century. So it's a book that faces both ways, both to um, uh, audiences and to professional journalists. When you were the editor of The Guardian, over that 20-year sweep of your editorship, um, there was huge technological change. Did you find that exciting or intimidating, a little of both? Like, how did you kind of confront that as, as the editor? Uh, it was it, all, all of the above. I mean, it, you read about what it's like to live through revolutions, the, the French Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, the, the Russian Revolution. And th this was the nearest that, you know, in, in peacetime that, that, that we have that experience of literally knowing, not knowing how this is going to end up, not even knowing what it's going to look like in, in six months time. 
And it's very, very, very difficult to lead in, in those circumstances because you, you will get an awful lot wrong. Uh, and it, 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 you're, 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 I think um, it was Clay Shirky, the, the American academic, who described it as rebuilding the plane in mid-flight. You know, you, you have to keep publishing. Uh, you, you, you think you know where you want to get, though the destination may be different from where you think you're going. But, you know, having said that, it was incredibly exciting. I mean, it, you know, for 300 years, journalism has developed incrementally, but within sort of um, set parameters. And we're probably the first generation uh, who could really uh, reimagine what journalism could do and what could be. And some of it was wonderfully liberating. The Guardian was arguably one of the first big English language newspapers to pivot to a muscular digital president, presence that includes um, audio work, audiovisual work as well. What was the thinking behind that? Because it was pretty bold at the time, was it not? Well, I, I guess so. I mean, it, it seemed very obvious to me that, that, that you could draw a line and that your print circulation was going to go like that. And sooner or later, there would be no readers. Um, and equally, digital was going to go in the opposite direction. You, there was an enormous potential to pile on readers. But of course, the, the money didn't follow the readers. So the, the question was, do you bravely go out and embrace the digital world, even though you can't quite see where the revenues are going to come from? Or do you, do you wait for a lingering death on, on print? So at some point you had to jump. And the most basic decision that newsrooms found it very hard to take, and maybe some still haven't taken, is essentially, are you editing a newspaper with a website on top? Or do you completely flip the whole operation and say, well, no, actually, we're, we're editing an online operation. And by the way, we'll produce a newspaper. Because until you make that decision, you're riding two horses and you'll do both rather badly. And so the decision to, to see yourselves as a, as a new iteration of that, um, was that, was that, um, was that handed down from on high? Was that a, like a group decision? What was that? Well, this, this business of, of leadership, I mean, I, I, I decided very early on that, that you couldn't just stand up in a front front of a bunch of journalists who are the most difficult and awkward audience in the world and say, follow me, I'm your leader. You know, I know where we're going. Um, and so all the time uh, we had many, 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 many conversations in small groups, medium groups, large groups to try and um, bring everybody together, even though people would have multiple different views and be traveling at different speeds. So these came out of multiple conversations, sometimes in pubs, sometimes in the newsroom, sometimes in morning conference, sometimes with technologists uh, about where this was all going. And, you know, we are in the midst of a racial reckoning in journalism now involving accountability on why journalism is still so dominated by white people, involving how we define news, what is deemed worthy of coverage, the meaning of bias and subjectivity versus lived experience that informs um, the actual work. Um, and I'd like your thoughts on that, what you're seeing, what you're thinking. Well, I think the, the hardest thing, I mean, there, there are many hard things for, for journalists in, the, in this revolution at the moment. And one of them, especially for journalists, I would say, plucking a figure at random, you know, over 40. So if you grew up with the printing press and the broadcasting studio, 
and and your world was transmitting to people, it's very, very hard to switch and, and listen to people, um, to, to accept that this is a two-way dialogue now or a multi-way dialogue. Uh, and I think on all these issues, you just have to accept that once billions of people start talking to each other and don't look up to some gatekeeper in the sky who's going to hand down a newspaper or, or, a, or a TV signal, the, the, the quality of discussion changes, the, the, the nature of power changes, um, people, the, the, the notion of who you trust changes. Uh, so every, everything changes. And it's quite brave now, I think, to think, but, but the way we did it 30 years ago was really nice. And we, we want to go back to that. I, I just don't, don't think that's going to work. You use the example of the Grenfell Towers and the terrible fire and uh, and it, just the devastation that it created as a wake-up call for um, journalists in London, really, to to see what was right in front of them the whole time. Talk to us yeah, a there were two shocking that. things about that. I mean, you know, here was a tower, a, a tower that was in one of the richest boroughs in Britain, maybe the richest borough, uh, and in in one of the wealthiest cities in the world. Um, uh, and when the journalists went down to this tower in, in the morning, first of all, it was highly noticeable that nearly all the journalists were white and all the people they wanted to talk to were black. You know, huge disparity which, 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 and, and huge anger. Uh, and the second was that this was one of those famous news deserts that we keep hearing about, that here in the, in the centre of London, three miles from, from the Houses of Parliament, was an area that was almost completely uncovered. The, the, the journalists had just pulled away from it, and there were a couple of free sheets. I tracked down one reporter who was working from Dorset, which is you know, 100, 120 miles away in the, in the countryside, and another working 35 miles away in, in Surrey. So these people were suddenly confronted by a tidal wave of white reporters and they got really angry and they said, but we've been blogging and writing about this. This, this was not a secret. We've been predicting this is going to happen. Why do you only come down here when people died? And this was a moment of, of sober reflection, I think, for, for newsrooms who kind of knew this was a problem, but had not done enough to address it. And do you see a, a change in British newsrooms now, in London newsrooms specifically, um, after Grenfell then? It, it is changing, and 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 certainly I'm broadcasting. There are many people who aren't, who don't look like me on screens. That's a good thing. Uh, and you know, I see more uh, columnists who, who again don't look like me in 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 news in newspapers. It's difficult. Of course, it's difficult. It's it's especially difficult in an industry that's contracting. If you're expanding and you can go out and hire lots of people, and you can take risks, and you can have training schemes. Uh, that's much easier than if you're shrinking and laying off people and have got a hiring freeze, you know. So it, it, it's not an easy thing to do, but I think the old-fashioned mindsets that, that, that didn't see it was a necessary thing to do, they're, they're, they're less noticeable now. And I'm sticking a little bit to the, the British press, and I know you talk about other um, news organizations worldwide as well, but um, you know, I don't know if you intended it, but your book is a bit of a roadmap to why we are at this point of that conversation now, because so much of those early days, you refer to the, the white men running the British newspaper system. Like they're just, 
they're everywhere. You can't miss yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, and some of them were great white men and some of them were, you know, brilliant intellectuals and, and, and so on and so forth. So it's not to, it's not to blanketly dismiss what went before, but for a long time, there was no real need to change. Um, and, and those very powerful white men, um, uh, didn't want to change. Um, and I, I think maybe the realization is dropping now that if you don't change, the audiences can just go elsewhere. So if they don't see their lives reflected in your news organization and it, it feels as though it's not uh, at all like you are, they, they can go somewhere else. Um, the same, I think, applies to things like climate change. You know, it, if, if, um, if, if people, especially younger people, if, if they see antediluvian attitudes to climate change in, in newspapers, they just won't read it. I mean, that, that just doesn't accord with what they know to be the reality. So these things become commercially damaging because people just switch off. And um, uh, you, you, um, essentially what you're, you also talk about the fact that diversity in newsrooms becomes a, a commercial equation then at some point. Yes, I mean, I, I think that we have to be very careful about how we think of metrics. Um, you know, met metrics, in a way, are, are wonderful, and, and people know much more about their readers than, than ever before. But it's a bit like the Facebook algorithm. You know, are, are you trying to get more, more, more and more readers, or are you trying to do the news that you think is important? Because they might be completely different things. And if you if you set your dial for the, for, for most readers, I'm, I'm going to confuse between my lesson. You know, your your dial for the most readers um, that will lead you to do a, a certain kind of journalism, which might, for instance, not be about climate change, um, because people the evidence seems to be they're quite frightened reading about climate change. But if you think of yourself as um, uh, an essential and reliable guide to the world and what it's going to be like and how it's going to affect your life, then of course you would write about climate change. But you have to decide which way your metrics are going to go. What do you see as, um, I don't know even if you can even like talk about one issue, but you do spend time on climate change in your book. I mean, do you see um, climate change and the shift from the debate about whether it existed to the coverage amongst um, most news organizations now and what to do about it because it obviously exists. Um, do you see that as one of the biggest issues going forward for journalism to tackle in new ways? Well, I, I write about it at some length because the story that journalism tells and has to tell, because otherwise, you know, what's our story is that, is that we're better than the internet, we're professionals. And you can trust us and we will tell you how it is. And we will, we will give you a sort of um, a, a way of understanding the world so that we're going to tell you what's important and we're going to discard all the rubbish that not, that, that's not important. You know, I think that, you think that, that's, that's what journalism should be. And then you look at what a lot of coverage of climate change was until really quite recently and the kind of people that were being hired to write absolute rubbish because they were funny or because they were provocative or because they they saw climate change as a sort of cultural issue. You know, that, that these are the culture wars and left-wing people believing in climate change and right-wing people don't. And so we will pay people who know nothing about climate change to dismiss it week after week. 
Well, you can't have both. You can't ask people to believe that journalism is a is a reliable craft and system for understanding the world and and write rubbish about the most important subject of our age. Um, and I, I think it, it's getting a bit better. Um, but it's really interesting to me that it was so bad for so long. Mm, and I think we can all identify a few holdouts there. But uh, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Um, uh, we've also seen journalists distinguishing themselves in new ways as the technology around journalism changes, including the coverage of disinformation and social media, the use of open sources, cell phone data, and social media to find stories or cover stories in new ways. I'm thinking of the New York Times following the cell phone trail from where Trump spoke January 6th to the Capitol. I'm thinking of the cell data showing the trail out of Wuhan. I'm thinking of verification work by Mariana Spring at the BBC or Jane Litvinenko at BuzzFeed and her work on disformation and online investigations. There's Daniel Dale fact-checking Trump full-time on CNN. Uh, Elliot Higgins at Bellingcat. How are they changing how we define journalism and how journalism is assigned? Well, radically is the answer. Um, I mean, I, 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 let's go back 10 years. And I, I remember the very first reporters on The Guardian, you know, the traditional thing you do as a reporter is you, you keep it to yourself. You know, I, I'm, I'm writing the story, but I don't want anybody else to know that I'm writing the story because I want, this, I want to get the exclusive. And then reporters started crowdsourcing their stories and saying, I'm writing, hey, everybody, I'm writing this story. Can you come and help me? Um, and and quickly they would became the center of energy for that story, and people realized this was a smarter way than working in private. You mentioned Elliot Higgins, who, who's this extraordinary um, figure who, who runs this um, website called Bellingcat. Um, I've just read his reviewed his book. Um, so he you know he was classically the the geek in the bedroom in the bedroom. Uh, who was, um, you know, unbelievably nerdy uh, about weaponry and shrapnel in 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 Syria and the and the and the, uh, the so-called Arab Spring, and and looked down on by journalists who thought, well, he's not a proper journalist. He doesn't do what we do, and and yet within five or six years, he was. Uh, humiliating um, many fine journalists because actually he, he made himself an expert in one thing and crowdsourced all his reporting. So, you know, there was a group of about 30 of them. And, and of course, that's always going to beat, well, it's not always going to beat, it, it, it's going to beat the, the work of a lot of journalists, especially in an age where either the news organization can't afford to send people on the ground uh, or it's too dangerous to travel. So there's been a massive shift to these new techniques of reporting. Mm, and yeah, they can certainly augment the work on the ground as well. Huh? Yeah. I, I'm, are you aware of news organizations actually creating positions um, for their own Elliot Higgins, like to, to do that kind of work full time in a newsroom? I, 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 I think they are. I think they are. And, 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 and some really uh, um, amazing data journalists and, and pe people who can mine data. You know, again, ten years ago, this was. Uh, I remember we had a, a young woman who who we just hired as a trainee, and um, she, she, we we sat her in the city office, and and she watched uh, um, uh, in amazement as a a reporter was about to take a, a three week exercise in in mining. I think it was mining FTSE company reports. 
And she just leant over and said, I can build a bit of code for you and I can do that in, in, in half an hour. And, and suddenly you could see the, this amazing interchange of knowledge. So I, I think it is happening. It, it has to happen. Um, on another issue, I just, uh, I'm going to touch on this with, um, in a post-Trump era, if it is post-Trump. Um, how do you think Donald Trump has changed the lexicon in how we, like, in, in how we characterize politicians and how we cover them? Well, he was, again, radically. I mean, he, he's, he was this astonishing figure who, who really, by declaring war on the press and the idea of the press, and rather ruthlessly singling out the New York Times, which is, you know, a very, very fine newspaper, you know, as good as journalism gets, and saying that is fake, uh, the fake New York Times, uh, really was inviting people to think, well, if that's fake, then anything is believable. And it worked to a large extent. You know, to, to surveys of the American public found that two-thirds of Americans can no longer tell what, what was good information from bad information, or, or they just disengaged because they shrugged and thought, I don't know, a plague on all their houses. And that gave him space to enter with his version of the truth. Uh, and it's remarkable that that happened in America in five or six years. So, you know, again, it's a relief at the moment that we've, we've, we've returned to some kind of normality, but it, but it started something very malign and bad. I don't think I uh, ever saw a world leader being called a liar like I did before, even, even the use of that word. It yeah, might be misleading, might be lots of other, you know, but, but to actually say this is where he's lying. It took a long time for American journalists because American journalists are, are so reluctant to show their political colors. And, and, and you, know, you know, Marty Barron's very memorable phrase when he said, we're, we're not at war, we're at work at the Washington Post, um, you could see them struggling just to say, look, we'll, we're just going to stick to what we know and we're not going to start name calling. And so it took them a long time to come out and said, no, actually, he, let, let's, let's call it what it is. These are lies. Do you think journalists need to call it for what it is more often? I, I think when it's, when it's unarguable, so, and, you know, that, that's what journalists should do. They, they should get to the position where they say, actually, there's, there's no doubt about this. this. This is just a straightforward lie. Then, then call it a lie. But be, but don't, but be careful because, you know, it might be a mistake or it might be something that's open to interpretation. But if it's a deliberate attempt to mis mislead, careless of whether it's true or not, then that's what we call a lie and we should call it a lie. And then, of course, it, we get into the whole issue, and you talk about this in various part, parts of your book on, like, who is a journalist? Is Julian Assange a journalist? Is, uh, you know, like, how does that work now? Um, who gets to be a journalist? Is what they're putting in a paper or online or wherever? Is that opinion? Is that journalism? Is that a hybrid? Uh, it can be very confusing for a consumer or a colleague. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's that. That's how basic this debate is at the moment. So who is a journalist? What, what is journalism? Um, and, and again, I think, I hope we've moved from a position where you had rather walled off newsrooms looking snootily at the inter internet and saying, well, they're, they're not proper journalists and surely people will realize that we're the proper journalists. Because, you know, we have to be, you know, some of this 
content it's a horrible word but some of this content is really really good it's written by experts i i follow lots of scientists and 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 doctors and lawyers you know they really know what they're talking about and some of them are brilliant at social media they're not exactly journalists but they do stuff that looks like journalism elliot higgins isn't exactly a journalist but he's bloody good at at um snouting out stories and 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 being an expert in 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 something so we've just got to live for a period with this uncertainty about what we call journalism at the same time as trying to persuade people that there is a craft called journalism which is better than most of the stuff you're going to find on the internet and is worth paying for um, I want to go to some of the questions because we have a fair number of questions um, for you. And um, I want to start with, we'll go back to The Guardian here. Alexander Brown is asking, is The Guardian's approach of soliciting voluntary donations rather than imposing a paywall succeeding? Uh, I mean, everyone's having a rough time at the moment, uh, but but the year before last, which was the sort of first last set of reliable financial figures before COVID struck, uh, they they were in a sustainable position. So they were making a loss, but a sustainable loss because there's a there's an endowment behind the Guardian, and um, you know personally, I I hope that works because I think it's very important that we have good information available to millions of people. Um, I've got nothing against paywalls, but paywalls tend to oper- operate in, in a different way. They tend to have good good information for, for elites, for people who can afford for, to pay for it. Uh, and we know that at, at a local level, it, it's, local papers are finding it very hard to, um, uh, to, to get people to pay. So this idea of having an, an, an open... Um, news organization where people like and respect and need it enough to say, I will voluntarily pay, uh, I think is an idea worth pursuing. You talked about a news desert in relation to the Grenfell Towers and Art Osborne has sent in a question. Is anyone monitoring small medium market journalism and how it is being gutted? Not only are news deserts getting bigger and readers, listeners, viewers being underserved, the ecosystems for reporters to graduate in quotations from smaller outlets to bigger ones is decimated. And there are very few reporters left to graduate and fewer spots to move into remaining. What are your thoughts on what he's asking? There? Well, it, it, he's completely right. It's a, it's a, it's a terrible crisis. Um, I, I, I was told the other day that 1800 American newspapers have died in the, in the, well, I don't know what exactly the time frame is, but, but in a, in a short time frame. Uh, it's a crisis. And um, I, I think we just have to acknowledge that, in many respects, that model has broken. Now, plan A, we may all hope, is that you know the advertising will come back, the readers will come back, or you know we can we can force Facebook and Google to pay for us, you know, and that that would be wonderful. But I think we have to have a plan B, and the plan B conversation I think has to begin like this and saying, well, what what lo- what information do local communities need? in order to be able to function because i i think we can agree that societies can't function unless we have an agreed basis of evidence and fact and then once you've agreed what what communities need 
then I think you have to work out who, A, who's going to provide it and who, who's going to pay for it. And I'm open to the idea of, of subsidy. I'm open to the, the, the idea of new entrants and, uh, and new players. Uh, but I think it's going, it's going to, it's a conversation we have to have and, and at, we have to have it now because it's, we're not going to sort it out quickly. Well, and it, it really does converge with what's going on in the world right now. First of all, at a time of pandemic, we really do need to know what's going on in our communities at a time when so many um, people of color, black people, indigenous people are being left behind. Um, those communities need to have a voice that isn't there, right? I mean, all of the things that we're talking about that are really roiling in our society right now have to do with what's going on in our own neighborhoods on and, many levels, right? Absolutely. And, and this is why we have to have a calm discussion. So, you know, much as I appreciate why people get angry with Facebook or get angry with CBC or BBC, you know, um, these, these organizations are playing a, a very vital role, I would say, in, in, in people being able to have a voice and be informed. Uh, and so what depresses me is people who come in and say, look, defund the BBC. I'm sure the same conversation is happening in, in Canada. You know, that we, we've got to get rid of the public service broadcasters. That's, a, that's an old-fashioned idea whose time has, has gone. No, these, 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 these organizations have never been more vital. Um, or or it, just to say that Facebook is, you know, uh, uh, undiluted evil. No, you know, the, the, there are people... In, especially in repressive countries for whom this is their way of communicating and, and, and sharing reliable information. So we mustn't rush into um, some very foolish um, uh, decisions that you, you can see some politicians in some countries itching to, to implement. Well, we do have a question about the BBC. Glenn Simpson writes, I'm constantly impressed by BBC's world coverage. No matter the world event, they seem to have an editor or bureau chief to put on air, uh, i.e. Persian editor. Is their funding formula a model to be replicated or is it in danger with the current government? There's different funding formulas huh, for like domestic BBC and the World Service. Well, there's, a, there's a, effectively a, a tax. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a license fee and it's raised separately from government, but unfortunately the government has a hand in, in, in deciding what it is and, uh, and, and deciding how much funding the BBC should get. So, I, I mean, I think we all accept that a tax that is basically linked to the sale of TV sets is, is not going to you know, make it for, for too much longer. But the idea of having a tax in order to have clean information, that seems to me like having a tax to have clean water or, or clean hospitals. You know, that, that, that's, that's it's, I think it's, it's that important. And you're quite right to say that, that there's a, that, you know, the BBC has huge international reach, national reach and local reach. And, you know, people resent it for all those things, but it's an economic model that works. And, I despair of politicians. We've we've just had well, we're going through it at the moment of this country. That this strange person who advised um, Boris Johnson, his his Svengali Dominic Cummings, who who, you know, talked in mob mobster terms about whacking the BBC and creating Fox News like outlets. I mean, why would anybody want Fox News? Uh, 
poisoning the the democratic discourse in their country when you've got the BBC? Well, the people who don't like public broadcasters would tell you that in this country too, I think. Um, <laughs> that's why. Um, I'm going to ask you another question, though. Uh, Sheila Johnson uh, writes, does the media pander to and publicize and popularize the worst elements in society to get readership? It's a danger. It's a danger. Um, it comes back to what we were talking about earlier, this question of metrics. Uh, and it also comes to a sort of very fundamental view of what news is. So, you, you know, the, the, the well-known saying that, you know, if a dog bites a man, that's not news. If a man bites a dog, that's news. Um, and so we, we tend not to write about dogs biting men, but we write about men biting dogs. But, but that very act of selection actually means we're distorting society because actually in most most days in most towns men don't bite dogs so if you're um I mean, I'm, I'm making a, a, a trite point but but i think news to make a serious point can be relentlessly negative and not celebrate things that are going right and um things that are normal and and the and the the, the, the things that work well in communities and the, the love that exists between people you know that, that that's not considered news uh, and uh, of course if if your metrics are simply that you want to make if you think you can make lots of money out of having lots of readers which is increasingly doubtful um, then of course you'll write about sens sensational things and you'll write about celebrities and royalty and things that you know don't really matter in people's lives I want to ask you some Facebook questions. Um, first of all, Hal Doran, should Google and Facebook play, pay media for news? Well, I, I think again, I you know I keep asking for a calm discussion. Um, so this question, you know, you listen to the two sides. Um, in, in Australia, you know, Murdoch's argument is that these companies are stealing their news or, or they're making money on the back of the news and, you know, they've just got a cough up. Facebook turns around and says, well, actually, only about 4% of our content is news and nobody's obliged to be on Facebook with news. So, you know, if you don't want to be there, we're not going to force you. Um, but no, one, no one's quite got the formula for who's doing who a favour. You know, when you remember when Facebook said, "All right, well, we'll we'll kick you all off," and the, the news publishers were all horrified. No, you can't do that. We we want to be on. Um, so there's got to be a, a a reasonable discussion that that comes up with a fair formula that can work in all countries, rather than what happened in Australia, which was a sort of you know a Murdoch friendly government working with Murdoch in order to come up with a sort of random solution. Um, and, and having that debate in, you know, 52 countries, um, I, I think it would be better to, to try and agree a, a, a universal principle. Um, uh, Jostein Algroy um, asks a couple of questions about um, you being on the Facebook oversight board, some of which you've answered, but at the end here um, asks, what is the board's position or opinion on Facebook's suspension of former President Trump's Facebook account in lieu of freedom of speech? Yeah. Um, well, we 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 haven't we haven't got a position yet because we're about to discuss it. Um, I think I think we're meeting next week for the first time to uh, to have a, a, a board wide discussion. Um, so you know, watch this space. We'll we'll um, it, it won't be long before we um, announce our position. 
Okay. Um, uh, Andrew Parker is asking, social media giants increasingly control which news stories from mainstream media sources get wide distribution, given the fact that reigning in the power of companies like Facebook is fraught, if not unlikely. How important is it for traditional media companies to prioritize quality in-house investigative journalism over shallow clickbait content? little editorial there, but go ahead. <laughs> well, I would say... Uh, essential. I mean, we know what doesn't work. We know because it's it's happened in so many, um, you know, um, American newspapers owned by, you know, big big corporations. So, it, it they they do the conventional thing. They they think okay, so fewer people are reading us, the advertising is dropping. We've got to cut our costs, and and the accountant looks at who are who are these expensive people, who are not very productive and are are costing a lot. Quite often, the answer is investigative journalists because they tend to work slowly. Uh, it, it takes an enormous amount of time to get things legally safe, and and sometimes the stories are unpublishable and and there's nothing to show for it. So the the accountants then sack the the um, the investigative journalists. Then the paper becomes a little less valuable, a little less interesting. More people stop reading it. The advertising falls off, and you get in a spiral of death. With The Guardian, um, the, the five years before I quit editing, we did so many investigative stories. You know, we did the whole WikiLeaks stories. We did the the, the phone hacking uh, story of of Murdoch. Uh, we we did Edward Snowden. We did torture, rendition. We did food safety. We did slavery. All these things that, in conventional terms, you wouldn't do. But when we went to the readers and said it's time you started paying us. The answer was overwhelming. They said, well, if you're going to do those kinds of stories, absolutely we'll pay you. So that became our business model. Uh, and that's counterintuitive to, a, to an accountant. Um, but I think it's, it's why accountants should work closely with journalists. I, I You know, that I, I'm glad that you say that because I think that um, sometimes we um, in the media... Um, we don't give our, our audience credit for how smart they really are and how much they really care about other things. Um, and if you offer them really credible information that it took you a while to dig up, um, you can be rewarded, huh? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, the, I mean, the, the Guardian is nearly 200 years old. It's gonna be 200 years old in, in May. And, um, you know, the fact that it's called The Guardian it's a clue, you know, that this was something that was on your side against them uh, and was, was going to give you some kind of protection. Um, uh, and I think you're right that, that readers can smell that and they can also smell the opposite. They, they think if they, they, they can smell a, a company that's been cut to the bone and is not doing proper journalism anymore and it's of no value to them. Why, why should they pay for it? I think you might have just asked, answered uh, William Doscotch's question. He was writing, are modern editors slaves to metrics? Should you publish stories if the metrics are low, but the right people read it and the story drives social change? Well, I think you have, you, you have to be the in command of the metrics rather than the metrics in command of you. So you, you have to, you, I think you have to have somebody quite sophisticated by your side who can interpret it. You can't just have a chart. And, 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 and try and edit according to, you know, um, 
crude metrics about about audience or or what's driving subscriptions but 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 if you've got a really smart person who understands metrics uh, and can drill down and um, en enable you to do the journalism that you think is uh, important and matters um, then metrics can be hugely valuable um, I, we're almost out of time, but I want to combine a, a couple of questions always um, from people beginning their journalism careers and looking for advice. And uh, Jared Rondell writes, for student and amateur reporters who are currently looking at an ever-increasing high-tempo news landscape, is there any advice looking back on the past styles of reporting that you feel can be adapted and learned from for today's environment? Well, I think part of the answer we've talked about already is that, you know, the, the lone reporter with a trilby on their head um, is being replaced by people who are being much more collaborative um, and, 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 and sort of putting ideas out there and saying, let's all work on different aspects of this story together. Um, I, I mean, I, I sympathize with the young people who are thinking of going into journalism because it, it looks insecure and it's not well paid. And, uh, but it is a vocation. It's it's we really do need journalists like the world needs bees. Um, and, um, I think if you've got that sense of vocation, you're just going to do it. And in a way, there's never been a more exciting time to do it because it's there for, for to, to be reinvented. And so what you, would your advice to those students coming out of school, whether it's a journalism class, a journalism program, or maybe another whole department, what skills do you, would, would you want to see um, an emerging journalist who was, say, coming to The Guardian or coming to you when you were editing The Guardian already have that they might not have thought of? Well, it's the, the brilliant thing about the world at the moment is that four billion people can publish. I mean, 40 years ago, I had to you know, get articles and stick them into scrapbooks and then photocopy them and send my photocopies off. If you're on social media, it's very easy to get on the radar of the people you want to work for. Uh, and you just have to prove that you're really good. And, you know, that could be taking pictures, design, investigations, criticism. Um, but you've got this amazing publishing platform in, in which you can start building your own brand and doing the things that that you consider valuable uh, and sooner or later you know you could be entrepreneurial about that yourself or you can get on the radar of people you want to work for it 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 can be done and as you said we still need journalists we, do, always. we certainly do like the world needs bees i like that <laughs> alan uh thank you so much um alan Rusbridger, the uh the uh author of i've got it here and any, everybody who knows me knows that i mark up books there's all well my done. little stickies well in there news and how to use it thanks for your time and thanks for your all your work over time thanks very much for talking to us today and uh it's, we'll, it's it's great to be um it's great to be with you um, and we'll just uh, we'll just wrap up with with uh, this. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Um, and remember that Alan's book is called News and How to Use It, What to Believe in a Fake News World. And it's available online in hardcover and other formats. Planning is underway for more J Talks, including on May 13th, 
uh, David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker. We are going to talk about what it takes to run a magazine that is considered the gold standard for long form journalism and personal essays. And we hope you will join us for that. For updates on this talk and others, follow the CJF, the Canadian Journalism Foundation on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, or visit the website to sign up for the newsletter. I'm Anna Maria Tremonti. Thanks a lot for watching. See you next time.